Hello and welcome to the Precision Microcast by Josh Hacko and Adam Dima. In this episode, we talk about electrochemical machining, we talk about diamonds, and then finally, our precision problems revolving around raw stock and intricate or complex fixtures. We hope you enjoy episode five of the Precision Microcast. All right, this week on our machine segment, we're actually going to split it up into three separate machines. Uh, We're focusing more on a process, which is the electrochemical machining process. Uh, We're going to get into the three main categories of this and kind of the differences between electrochemical machining and uh, EDM. So the most prevalent form of ECM would be like a ram sinker similar to a RAM EDM, Uh, and that would be the first one we're talking about, and that is a machine from Pemtech. So Josh, do you have any exposure to ECM? No, I embarrassingly um, equated ECM to RAM EDM the first time you linked it through. I said, oh yeah, I know heaps about this stuff. I see it trade shows all the time, but then (laughs) you really quickly explained that uh, it's not the same process, and in fact, I've never seen ECM at a trade show. So you're kind of the reigning expert here. Uh, But doing some research, it looks like a very, very interesting process. And the Pemtech machine is very interesting as well. Yeah. So just to kind of break down some of the differences between EDM and ECM, basically all the system parameters are flipped opposite. So on an EDM, you have a dielectric fluid that you're using to flush the cavity as you're burning, where on ECM, uh, the fluid is conductive, and that's what's actually doing a lot of the work. Uh, So ECM, you're using low voltage, high current. EDM's the opposite, high voltage, low current. Um, So uh, RAM EDM, the the fluid you're using is more or less neutral. It's not going to cause too many problems of staining, whereas on ECM, uh, it's, it's a salt solution. It's sodium nitrate or sodium chloride, and uh, that can cause a lot of problems with rust. And, but uh, So those are, those are kind of the key differences. Some of the benefits of ECM, though, there's zero concernable electrode wear. Since the fluid's doing a lot of the work, your, your electrodes last indefinitely. There's no heat-affected zone. This is a non-thermal process. Um, and this is perhaps, in my opinion, one of the coolest benefits. The cycle time doesn't scale when you add multiple pieces. So if it takes five minutes to burn a cavity into a part, if you put 16 parts on the table, it still takes five minutes to push down and that axis, uh, you simply offset that with more current. So I think that's, in my opinion, what makes this a really powerful technology is as you add more parts to the table, it doesn't impact cycle time. So in your experience with ECM, or at least observing the process, uh, which industries and what kind of parts are made on these types of machines? Uh Certainly not what we were interested in it before, but the the impression I get the biggest industry for the 
the RAM style ECM is jet turbine components. Uh, so it, it may be pre rough machined and this is just finishing it and it could do so with very little stress on the part, which I imagine is important for something like a jet part. Uh, you don't have any stress fatigue or cracks you have to worry about then. Uh, but also part to parts, very, very similar. Uh, and this isn't like EDM concerned about material hardness or how abrasive the material is or difficult to machine. A lot of, uh, engine components for the airline industry are some kind of high nickel super alloy and can be difficult to machine where electrical metal removal doesn't concern itself with that. Yeah. And you, you've sort of touched on an interesting point. It's not just electrical metal removal, um, like a standard EDM process where you have the electrode wearing um, because there's a spark jumping from the electrode to the material. This is very different because the electrode does not wear at all uh, since you have the salt solution uh, doing the machining, if you will. Yeah, and the electrode not wearing is great, but the trade-off there is the tooling costs be quite high because you have these kind of electric or uh, 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 not electric uh, convoluted uh, manifolds to get the the electrolyte into position uh, a lot of those are 3d printed but it's, it's still a considerable expense and design time when you compare it to something as simple as an EDM electrode so with the classic RAM EDM solution the electrode itself determines uh, the accuracy on the part. So if you make a really accurate, accurate electrode and you have a stable machining process, uh, you get high accuracy on the final part. But with this machining process, uh, you mentioned earlier there, it's less about the electrode uh, being accurate in terms of the, the part-to-part accuracy. I'm not necessarily like the, the imprint of the image accuracy but the part-to-part accuracy is not determined by the electrode necessarily but by the solution right and the flow rate the the positioning of how the the fluid goes into the cavity can actually really affect this from what i understand uh more so with the electrochemical grinding and how the fluid contacts the wheel but even in the RAM arena, it's it's very, very critical flushing this correctly. Uh, the spark gap seems to be a lot bigger than it would be on a RAM EDM. So you, you, you have kind of a wider berth. Um, I, some of the processes, they kind of advertise as about plus or minus five microns in accuracy. And... The people I know that do this and the people I know that do the electrochemical grinding, that is honestly about the hard wall for them. They don't really want to go much tighter than that. Uh, whereas RAM EDM, there's guys who are comfortably, you know, single-digit micron territory and not breaking a sweat. Um, same with wire. So it, it, you do lose a little bit of uh, overall accuracy as a result, but... Still very accurate process once it's dialed in. One interesting point that I had uh, discovered from the research that I did 
was that it's almost like an electro polishing process. Is that right? Uh, yeah, it, uh, it it effectively is just turning the metal into a solution and washing it away, um, much like uh, electro polishing, you know, piece of stainless. It's just stripping slowly molecules off the surface, and so the end result is it can it can I think it's upping current at the final spark out depth. It comes off the machine near polished if you want to. Uh, so while this is used for a lot of like very specific industrial applications, I could honestly see this doing quite well in something where you have very fine aesthetic finishes because uh, you can get a 0.03 RA surface finish off the machine with no secondary polishing uh, with this process. Kind of going farther with the fine finishes is since there's no electrode wear, you can have very small text sizes or very, very intricate small lines, and you're not going to see those diminish or wear like you would hard milling or with a RAM electrode kind of wearing over time. You'll get very, very nice looking parts time after time. And where you see this in my industry is coining punches, uh, literally for coins, uh, minting punches. Uh, a lot of a lot of uh, the president's faces or such are, are put onto the punch and tooling with a process like this. And earlier you mentioned electrochemical grinding. How is that different to electrochemical machining? Uh, process is very, very similar when you look at it in terms of electricity and uh, parts. But this case, you have an electrically conductive abrasive wheel. And there's quite a few ways of doing that, uh, but long story short, you have some kind of metal bond abrasive, whether it's diamond or CBN, and part of the metal bond structure is copper. Uh, I've also seen that done with like a vitrified sand wheel, even. They've managed to make those conductive. And then somewhere on the grinding spindle, you'd have like a rotary brush set passing current in. Uh, the problem is you can't really retrofit an existing grinder with this process because the salt solution it uses, uh, the sodium nitrate, is not friendly to iron-based alloys that are used in a lot of machines. So you need to have a lot of stainless guarding around the machines. Um, at one point, I don't know if they still do, Chevalier actually made a turnkey solution for this um and there's there's a lot of interest for these machines for tubing cut off in the medical industry so if you have something like a syringe needle this can cut and put that piercing angle on it with zero burr because it's not cutting it's dissolving the metal and it's perfectly sharp to a very fine grit and because it's not cutting, the, the fluid's doing the work, you don't have to worry about any burning as a result of using such a high grit wheel. So with the grinding process, uh, I'm assuming it's used in a different set of applications as the earlier process you mentioned. Yeah, the, from what I've seen mostly, it's, it's just tubing cut off. Uh, you don't really see a lot of uh, flat grinding that you typically associate with surface grinders. 
And the reason it gets back to that flow rate, um, it's very, very difficult to grind shoulders accurately or large flat surfaces with this process. Uh, and from what I recall, and I haven't found anything concrete online, it, uh, it doesn't pair well with carbide. And in my industry, a lot of the surface grinding work is done in carbide. Um, I, I don't know the chemistry behind it, but something about all the cobalt you find in carbide causes chemical issues with the, with the electrolyte fluid. Yeah. I, one interesting thing you raise there is, is the science or the level of science that's in a lot of these processes. And, uh, often I find that the higher the complexity of the machining process, the lower the accessibility to the common man, <laughs> like, uh, even with YEDM, I think that scares a lot of people, and it's probably one of the simplest, I'd say, uh, non-conventional machining processes. Maybe outside of something like a laser. Laser, I think, could be a little bit more simple than a YEDM. But uh, it's it, as as beneficial as the process seems to be. I think a lot of people shun it instantly because they don't understand it, uh, and that's what I see a lot in the kind of EDM world they don't think that a feature can be made a certain way or a, or process can be improved with an EDM solution so they just discount it instantly and uh, they think of I guess the way they did it in the past and I'm talking about sort of customer parts or like pre-designed parts you know you think of a drill press or a, you know a disc grinder then you might think of a uh, like a table saw and then you might think of a, a router and then a milling machine and then a lathe and so on and so on you climb up this sort of uh, evolution of machining and you sort of end at uh, like a cnc mill and five axis is quite complex and then you go into edm and then finally and this is probably testament because i mean i've been in this industry for a little bit now and i haven't even heard of ecm you've reached ecm and uh i just wonder um I wonder how often we we discount possible new technologies and new uh, processes just because we don't understand them. And you mentioned like in our little chat before that if you were to make uh, a set of products that benefited from the like the polished off the part machine, um, sorry, if you were to make a part that benefited from the polished straight off the machine aspect with this ECM process, you'd probably use the ECM process. Uh, how did, how do you even get to such like a, a conclusion with that sort of stuff? Um, just part to part consistency is so high. There's no secondhand operations. Um, but you are right. ECM hasn't, as an industry, hasn't really done a good job of marketing itself. I don't think a lot of process-driven people know it's an option and how good of an option it could be in the right circumstances. That being said, it is not user-friendly. It is not a job shop type machine. Uh, these these have pretty uh, tight processes in place. And uh, But like you said, for a, a part that you're going to be making a lot of it, it could make a lot of sense. If you're doing something with a lot of high RPM, fine detail, call it engraving, 
um, it, it could be beneficial. Um, you know, I, I don't think you'd have enough volume with watches, but like some of the parts on your watch might be a good example, like the case or something. You can have these beautiful finishes right off the machine and all this fine, intricate detail, which you may not have done before because it would have been cost prohibitive machine time wise. But now all of a sudden, it's not really that big of an impact on the cycle time. But that as well as volume, because of the high tooling cost per part, uh, it seems like volume is a prerequisite as well. Yes, uh, does d- definitely need some volume behind it. Um, even even if it's like a, a somewhat low number, it, it probably has to be relatively reoccurring. Like, say you're only making a hundred of these a quarter, but you can knock them out in a you know a week versus spending all quarter on them. Uh, you know that kind of makes sense because the setup once you have these electrodes made they're essentially on a 3r or in a row of base they just pop right in so the setup's quite quick once the initial tooling's built but uh yeah the the initial tooling is considerably more expensive than ram edm and i can get into that a little if you'd like but uh essentially a ram edm you have your electrode up on the ram spindle and then you just secure your part to the table. However, uh, these ECM RAM style machines in their most basic form are a one axis machine. They just go up and down. So you have to have your part located to the top accurately on a pallet as well. So you would, on a mill with a pallet receiver, cut your work holding, put it in the machine, cut your electrode, put it in the RAM, and then the two coalesce uh and then you have to have some kind of fluid management as well and so the last form of ecm is electrochemical deburring and this is probably the lowest hanging fruit in terms of application cost and and time to set up uh but it it's pretty clever in terms of being able to not only deburr but also round cross holes in manifolds and having done a fair bit of manifold work myself uh, something like this would be uh, a really sweet on certain parts Uh, so essentially same deal you have some kind of salt solution and you have some kind of 3d printed uh, fluid management tooling which would go down in the cavity and then just have a copper insert in the area you want the process to remove material so if you think about like what a hydraulic cavity looks like you'd have that negative or positive i'm sorry 3d printed and wherever that cross hole is you would have a piece of tungsten or tungsten copper i'm sorry inserted into that 3d print and you would stick it in run fluid through it and then apply current and the cross hole corner would then slowly form a radius does that make sense yeah i think so <laughs> it it's uh it, the principle is still the same on on all of these it's just the application mm-hmm. of the principle right yeah the closest thing that i've experienced to that is it's a little bit more it's probably a lot more basic than what you just explained but it's electrochemical deburring in a tumbler and uh, you use copper 
polishing media. So instead of walnut or um, any sort of like stainless steel pins, you use copper pins and you have a special solution mm. and you run your steel parts. Uh, I'm not a thousand percent sure if it works with other components, like other mat- materials like titanium or something like that. But in general, it's, uh, it's the steel parts that get polished, but the polishing action is, is I guess, driven by an oxidation reaction between the, the dissimilar metals. So you have the copper and the steel and they have... Um, it's like a battery almost so that's the closest thing i have to uh electrochemical deburring in my sort of um arsenal of experience but i've never used it and that's um, the swiss use it a lot in the watch industry for uh polishing extremely fine parts where you can't for example like a screw if you think of a very small screw the 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 minor diameter of the screw is very difficult to get to it's like a v um no matter what sort of media you use, there will always be a radius on the edge of the media and you can't get down into the V. But watchmakers are a bit crazy and they want everything mm-hmm. to be mirror polished. Uh, so they develop these sort of solutions where you can electrochemically polish the part, but in a tumbling setting. So you can put thousands of parts in um, and just run it for a couple of days and they come out really nice. I had not heard of that. Well, in closing... Electrochemical machining is definitely worth looking into uh, if you have the right part. Uh, it's expensive, requires a fair amount of volume to make work, uh, but sometimes there's just no better solution. So uh, check it out. It's, it's, in my opinion, one of the more underlooked yet extremely fascinating types of uh, non-traditional machining out there. So this next segment uh, is our history segment. And one thing I really wanted to talk about uh, as a lead-in for later discussion and more in-depth discussion, maybe possibly with an expert if we can get him onto the show, is diamond tooling. In the watchmaking industry, diamond tooling is used quite a lot. Um, We make a lot of parts out of non-ferrous materials and they require very high finishes and they're quite small and one of the better ways to get very high polish on these materials is by using diamonds and that sort of started my journey into thinking about uh, diamonds and how they're used in machining and you've definitely heard us mention them on the podcast Uh, and there is a lot of history to it there's a lot of history to using and well the use of diamonds in manufacturing and it probably starts, and there's no, there's no real consensus on this, that no one's written like an extensive uh, and definitive history on this, but it was probably used in a slurry format, diamonds in slurry in a lapping process. That's most likely the first use of uh, diamond as a cutting tool. And uh, we, we can sort of glean that from... Uh, the faceting on gemstones in gemstones and in, well in jewelry and gemstones in jewelry we can observe that people created facets in those stones and um and other sort of stones as well a long long time ago and the most convenient method was by using the slurry of the the stone that 
you cut, more or less rubbing it up against something else uh, to create a slurry. And that slurry started cutting and then you use more of that slurry to cut more stones. And I'm sure that someone figured out that by using diamonds and creating a diamond slurry, you could cut any other stone that you wanted. Uh, Beyond that, I'm not exactly sure where it went, where that history of diamond tooling went, except that in a modern setting, um, monocrystalline diamond or MCD or MKD if you're German, um, MKD tooling or MCD tooling has been around for a little while. It's probably at least 100 years. And the quality, and this is the most fascinating part, the quality of these diamond tools hasn't really changed too much. Uh, the single crystal diamond tooling scene has been fairly stable for a very long time. So if you grab a cutter that's 60 or 70 years old, you can actually observe that the edge is as good as an edge that you can get from standard monocrystalline diamond tools currently. Maybe there's some differences in the geometry of the of the cutter, but the nature of the process and the nature of creating an edge on diamond hasn't really changed in a in a long time uh, but adam have you encountered diamond tooling either pcd or mcd and what's been your experience with it uh i have uh pcd a lot with the carbide milling i do uh and you know that's actually an extremely reliable process uh it's one of those things i just let my customers think is difficult um it's slow the DOCs, AOCs are very, very tiny, uh, but honestly, it's it's actually just a, a dream process. The machine runs for several hours on a part that fits in the palm of your hands, and uh, there's almost never any issues. So, I like it a lot. I would love to be able to do some diamond work in soft metals. Uh, I, I always marvel at the surface finishes you guys can achieve. So, you yeah, you bring up a really interesting point. Um, when I experience diamond tooling, it's always in soft metals. It's always in brass. Uh, I mean, occasionally aluminium, but I don't use much aluminium in my in my products. Um, and German silver, which is like a nickel silver uh, uh, material that's used in watchmaking quite often. But the industrial use for PCD, I guess, in your sector is for cutting hard, brittle materials like carbide or... I mean, if you look at 6C tools uh, on Instagram, they show a lot of uh, like zirconia milling or um, milling of glass or some ceramics, other ceramics. Uh, what put you on to PCD tooling? How did you get to know it? Um, just through the milling of carbide, uh, an old neighbor, he now works for PH Horn and he is in charge of their milling of carbide program. And most of that is PCD. And so that's kind of how it first got on my radar. And then I, then I just, you know, kind of had to dive into it. I was very interested in it. So we've mentioned PCD and MCD and the terms quite a lot. And uh, it's probably a good time to talk about the differences between polycrystalline diamond and monocrystalline diamond. And a lot of it is in the name, <laughs> but uh, there's some important things that we can glean from from the different structures and uh, sort of different uses that PCD and MCD have. So with polycrystalline diamond, um, actually, let me start with monocrystalline diamond. With monocrystalline diamond, 
you have a single crystal, and sometimes it's called single crystal diamond, but you have a single lattice structure that is faceted and lapped to have an edge. So if you try to zoom in with a microscope, um, and that's another thing, it's very difficult to use a scanning electron microscope on these materials um, to, as, as you can see on Marv's Instagram, actually, if you scroll back a little bit, he coated uh, some MCD tooling with gold so you could observe the surface and the edge of these MCD cutters properly under a scan scanning electron microscope. But if you, uh, if you zoomed in with a very powerful microscope, you would see that the individual carbon atoms are all linked to each other. There is no, uh, there is no void in, this, in the crystal structure of the material. But if we go to polycrystalline diamond, you see, if you, under the same microscope, you see individual grains of diamond. Uh, those grains, uh, the size of those grains is something uh, that you can change in the same way that you can change the size of carbide grains. You have those ultrafine carbides and then you have those kind of coarser carbides. Um, and those grains are held usually with a metallic binder. And uh, I say usually because... Sumitomo also has a product called uh, Sumidaya or Samidaya Binderless where they don't actually have a, a binder at all. They just compress the individual grains of diamond together and they form uh, some sort of lattice structure amongst themselves. But fundamentally, they have a, uh, a, a grain, if you will. So with polycrystalline diamond, you st you're still cutting with diamond. The, the diamond grain is doing the cutting it's never the metal binder and it's slightly different from a grinding process where you have um, new material sort of exposed and and the and the cutting tool is is able to be reconditioned by exposing a fresh layer of grain it's firstly the grains are much smaller and the proportion of binder to grain is much higher or well actually lower far more grains than there is binder and you you actually cut with an edge instead of individual edges as you would with a grinding wheel so that's i guess i guess the biggest difference between mcd and pcd and the the results from that difference, that kind of uh, physical difference between the two cutting materials is that you get a different level of sharpness uh, that is possible between the two cutting tools. With monocrystalline diamond, your sharpness, the sharpness of that cutting edge is purely defined by the size of the carbon atom. So you can get a edge that is theoretically the sharpest edge um, possible from from a carbon at carbon based cutting tool but with polycrystalline diamond the cutting edge sharpness is a function of the grain size i'm not entirely sure that it's the size of the of the the diamond grain but it is definitely dependent on that you can't get polycrystalline diamond uh, tooling as sharp as monocrystalline diamond tooling and that I guess presents itself in the application differences as well. When you cut uh, brass, for example, with PCD tooling, you'll get a very good finish 
but it won't be a mirror in the same way that you will get a mirror with MCD tooling. And that's all a function of the sharpness of the cutting tool. That makes a lot of sense about grain size and relative sharpness. We see that with stamping dies with carbide grain size. So Josh, when you had mentioned the, the history of man-made diamonds and using them industry, industrially, it kind of kicked loose like this little nugget of info in my head. And I, I'd always heard kind of just amongst people in the industry that the guy who invented the, the industrial diamond got a, a savings bond, a rather small one, for his exploits. And uh, I didn't really know any more details, but uh, while we were talking, I Google it quickly. Uh, Tracy Hall of General Electric had invented the modern industrial diamond. And, you know, the, the uses of it go far and beyond away from just the cutting tool industry. It's it's uh, been used everywhere and is is quite a financial boon for General Electric. Um, you know, I'm sure they had a lot of R&D costs, but uh, for his life's work, they gave him a $10 savings bond. <laughs> so, um, do, doesn't quite seem uh, appropriate for, for what it's done for, for humanity and all the various industries it's served. But uh, yeah, that, that one gave me a chuckle. Yeah, no, you would not be uh, doing very much with that ten dollars, right? Well, actually, who knows? Maybe if it was um, put in some sort of like really well compounding fund or something <laughs> like that, you might end up with a little bit more. But in the scale, yeah, you're right. In the scale of what diamonds have done industrially, it's not very much at all. And considering like one diamond tool, and and this is probably another interesting thing, but one diamond tool from Dixie, let's say, who's a, a good producer of diamond tools for the watchmaking industry, costs at least $1,000. Um, 10 bucks does not seem like very much. That's 1950s money, Josh. That, that, that went a lot farther back then. <laughs> uh, but you do raise an interesting point, the industrial um, creation of diamonds. Uh, diamonds, obviously, are carbon, and you can create diamonds by compressing and heating carbon to very high temperatures and pressures. And uh, you end up with a very homogenous, very repeatable process where you can create diamonds. And uh, most of the, I guess, monocrystalline diamonds um, that we use industrially are created in this process. But historically and you can sort of see um that in some of the older diamond tools if you're fortunate enough to find any uh they can be natural diamonds so you can get a you know a sizable diamond a carrot or maybe two carrots and it can be fashioned into a sort of cutting tool or at least the edge of a cutting tool and that was a big price driver as well even though diamonds are extremely common nowadays um a hundred years ago, the industrial process of mining diamonds was not as, as uh, I guess, developed. And we didn't have all these blood diamonds and, I guess, exploita exploitation in, in third world countries for diamonds, natural diamonds. Um, and that drove the price up. But nowadays, the, you know, creating a diamond industrially is fairly cheap. And the price is usually in the lapping and the time it takes to lap the diamond perfectly 
and also in the failure rate because even though you can create this very homogenous diamond um, industrially there still might be micro cracking there still might be a uh, a flaw or a defect uh, in, in the lattice structure that can cause premature wear and uh, when you talk about these super super sharp cutting edges extremely small defects matter and uh, i guess that's another reason why uh, an industrially created diamond is uh, slightly better because for example like a pink diamond is pink because it has nitrogen atoms trapped in the lattice structure of the diamond and uh, i'm sure that if you you know again put this uh, diamond under the microscope uh at the point where that nitrogen atom interfaces with the rest of the lattice structure, there is a weakness and that weakness can propagate and ultimately destroy the tool. So it's it's a really complex sort of field. Uh, I don't actually know that much about it except, except through my experience. Um, and I'd love to get uh, one of my newfound friends <laughs> uh, in on it to talk about, you know, how, how these cutters are made and... Um, I guess some benefits that we haven't talked about here on, on, on this segment. Uh, but I'm more than happy to chat about it with uh, all of you guys that are listening and, and um, I'm happy to learn more about this really quite fascinating cutting process. For my precision problem, I... Uh, encountered this issue actually quite a while ago it's um i was making these parts uh for my watch and they're called main plates and if you go into my instagram um you can see the timascus main plates that i made uh and if you scroll far enough you can see the brass main plates that i made that we you know coated in gold so they still look yellow and don't oxidize but the issue I was having with this main plate was actually the fixturing method and it's a, it's a fairly complex part in terms of um, its features and the accuracy that needs to be held on these features but today I'm, I guess I'm talking a little bit about a specific issue with specific fixturing called window machining and um, uh, you, you use this machining process on five axis machines uh, where you can access both sides of a part. Let's say um, if we think of like a disc, you can access one fl- the side of the flat, net, flat disc and then the other side of the flat disc within the same clamping. So you can flip the disc 180 degrees radially and you find, uh, I guess, you can access all the, you know, pockets and holes and all those sort of things and then flip it over and do the same and mill and drill and tap and ream Uh, but this process as alluring as it is where you have you know almost infinite freedom to flip the part around and you get all the benefits of having um having the part in the same clamping so you don't have to worry about uh, like a like a mismatch outside of the kinematic mismatch but even then if you use a is a use a nice five axis machine you don't really have to worry about that either Um, despite all these benefits there is one massive downside which is the rigidity in the part itself is extremely low as you get closer towards the center the center of the part is where you have the furthest distance from any clamping surface and if you think about it the part is just floating in the center 
Uh, it's only being held by the material around it, and that material around it is eventually being clamped down by uh, some sort of like a clamshell type of clamp. Um, and when you mill or drill or imply any sort of axial cutting force, you have a deflection in that material and it and it moves away from the cutting edge so you're kind of pushing instead of cutting and i'm talking about microns here so re really you can measure it actually um but it's in the scale of about uh, 5 to 20 microns of deflection in the set and it also depends on the type of strategy that you're doing and the uh, sharpness of the cutting tool all those sort of things that influence cutting pressure and cutting force now that's, I guess, like a fundamental issue with window machining. But then you have a little bit more of a sinister issue, which is your, your kinematic inaccuracy of the machine that you're using. Um, and Adam had a few of these issues when, when we were talking about it um, before the podcast on his fourth axis. And that's the kinematic point of the, of the axis uh, is never 100% perfect. Since it's an angle, the further you are away from the kinematic point, if you can imagine like a turntable uh, flipping over to a 90 degree position and like a horizontal position, if that angle is not perfectly 90 degrees, um, the further away from the kinematic point you are, uh, I guess, um, the larger your error. And uh, that's like basic maths if you think about it, but when you're kind of engrossed in this... Um, fixturing arms race you don't really think about it and that kinematic error is doubled because when you flip the part around 180 degrees you get a uh, I guess a mirrored uh, error which is also compounded by any inaccuracies in the z height of your tool are also compounded in that mirror way so this method seems great and it's fantastic, uh, except when you start measuring your parts <laughs> and uh, you quickly realize that, um, you know, if your z-axis grows by two or three microns, that turns into four to six microns on your part in the thickness. And if I'm trying to hold 20 microns on the thickness of this part of this disc, if you can imagine, um, I need all the microns I can kind of scrounge if uh, just one small error is can lead to you know four to six microns so the way i sort of um overcame this precision problem was um i didn't i mean i could have easily uh chosen a different fixturing method you know uh putting the part on a three axis uh sort of pallet and then flipping it over and probing the location so i get my center point and rotation angles um, and then my Z height, that's a way of doing it. But this particular part had a feature that uh, it's like, a, it's called a stem hole. It's drilled radially. So it really benefits from the five axis move where you can access one side of the disc, the other side of the disc and a radial hole all in one clamping. It's really good. But uh, you do need to combat with this window machining issue. And that's through, I guess, very, very careful uh, process management. So that's Firstly, temperature management. We let the machine kind of um, stabilize as for, well. During production, we let it stabilize a whole day in, in a warm-up cycle before we started machining uh, with oil. So everything uh, climatized and the spindle running. So everything grew and stabilized. And then with fresh cutting tools. So 
the first kind of issue I mentioned was related to cutting force. So the lower you can keep the cutting force by using fresher tools, the lower your deflection. And then finally is uh, kinematic point measurement while the machine is at the same temperature that you're machining at. So if you you know, come into the uh, come into the factory at the start of the day and you say, oh, great, I'm going to do some window machining and you measure the kinematic point at your machine in the morning, uh, it will be different and sometimes quite, quite different to when you're actually machining and the whole machine's warmed up and the room's sort of stabilized in temperature. So we let the machine warm up for a day and then you measure the kinematic point and then you start machining. So a lot of these little tricks and sort of uh, nuggets of information very useful for um, chasing the final micron. So what about your precision problem, Adam? Uh, not really all that precise parts, and that's kind of what got me into hot water. Uh, I was doing these hydraulic manifolds, and the customer supplied material, which I'm learning that's like a, that's like a flashing red light with a job anymore. <laughs> Because the customer is going to buy the worst material they can get their hands on. And they did. Uh, and so the material is just three inch bar stock square. But it was it was already a few thou under print dimension. It was right on low limit. What I didn't realize when it came in was how out of square it was. Um, so it was out of square between four and six thou, which would be like 0.1 to 0.15 millimeters. And uh, this caused problems later on when I went to do some fourth axis work. So the first operation is it gets a relatively big hole and thread put in it. And then it goes on to the fourth axis, gripping that center. It then puts a bunch of drilled holes to... Uh, not that tight of a depth, but when when this parts that out square, that became a problem. It put some drills holes to a certain depth radially uh, on each face. Uh, but because these parts were so out of square, the first thing the program would do is come down and probe and establish A axis zero off of one of the planes of the square block. And then it would start putting in holes. Um, so the holes on that face and the 180 degree opposite face were right to depth, no problems. But the holes on the 90 and 270 face, I was seeing some variation on depth. In reality, they were going to the same place every time, but the face height was varying because of the squareness issue. And that's what I was troubled to why. And my, I could have called the customer and said, hey, this is what's happening. Can we get a variance? But I've learned over the years, it's almost always quicker to just solve the problem by any other means than involve the customer. Because they have to call their customer, some engineer has to look at it. You're down for an entire day. So I just ended up every, every cycle, it would probe the whole location, uh, at the height of this raw stock and probe at the whole location and then drill a distance from that probe head. And then all of a sudden my measurements were all coming right in. Uh, 
the first way was a more consistent part. All the holes were the same depth from the center cavity. Um, the second way, if you think about it, the parts that matter on that, they were all a little bit different, but that's the part that will go through inspection easier. Um, when, when you're dealing with like a part like that, it's probably just going to get depth mic'd or even using the depth feature on a zero to six caliper. That's how they're going to check that. So I, I kind of built the part based on how I know they check it and how to get it through their inspection successfully. <laughs> Don't say that aloud, Adam, please. No, I'm blocking my ears. <laughs> Well, I mean, truthfully, there there wasn't any significant difference in function. Uh, these are hydraulic lines. Uh, that number on the print was arbitrary, but I've learned over the years if it doesn't, you know, if it doesn't meet that because of the raw material they supplied you, they're still not happy. Um, so I just do my best to give them what they want and everybody's happy and no phone calls and so yeah i mean it is kind of weird where you're you're actually not making a consistent part when you think about it but uh uh when they measure it it's what they want so but yeah these the the raw stock was trapezoidal so when you talk to customers about uh supplying material and all that um, part of the quoting process can you uh i guess put in a preference maybe for uh, the raw stock supplied uh, more often than not on certain customers yeah uh, I could say okay I want this rough ground or um, the big thing is a lot of customers want to push uh, plasma cut or flame cut drops on me and I want nothing to do with that I would much rather mill it from solid billet than deal with that um, so yeah, that, and, and it's not just an industry. Like the most, all of my customers want to supply me material because they would rather pay it and then not have me buy it, and then put fifteen percent on top of it. Uh, so it does save them some money. It saves me some cash flow. So I'm not against it in the right circumstance. But uh, yeah, it it, uh, it can be delicate. I had one experience um, where customer supplied the brass required for um it was more or less like a like a i guess uh like a hex nut some sort of a slightly more complex hex nut that he couldn't get off the shelf and he supplied the brass for it and it was a very small manual turning um sort of job and uh it had porosity in it so i turned it down and i could see the different um almost grades of uh, brass that had been melted down <laughs> into into this billet and uh, the porosity lied in between those kind of grain boundaries. And I was shocked. I'd never seen anything like that. And when I told him, he didn't believe me and said that uh, it was better if I tried again with my own material. <laughs> and <laughs> I politely said that I would. And when I f <laughs> finished the final product, I didn't say any more of it because I... Uh, was it, I guess, maybe a sensitive issue for him. No way that his material could be bad, even though he paid the lowest dollar for it. Yeah, I, I ran into a problem recently with some parts where the 
stock was water jetted, then double disc ground before it came to me. Uh, and when it came to me, like about 10% had a, had a fallout issue with the flatness. Uh, and I thought, okay, that's no problem. I'll just set them aside and, um, email the customer. Hey, these aren't flat. I emailed the wrong person. They didn't think anything of it. And then I just sent them back. Uh, and I don't know, I, I should have CC'd more people because they were, they were a little up in arms as to why I didn't finish all of them. Then I had to basically re-explain, uh, well, these weren't flat enough. Um, so, you know, my preference is it just goes so much smoother when they ask for parts and then I handle everything and give them finished parts. A uh, lot less spinning plates that way. Absolutely. And especially when it's a precise product, uh, the precision chain starts far beyond, you know, mm-hmm. um, I guess, you know, like material arriving in, in your workshop. It It's what kind of material? What's the format? What's the delivery? Uh, I know that flat bar usually has a little bit more stress in it than round bar, depending on how you you know machine it and all that sort of stuff. And the customer often doesn't know those things because they're they're paying you to deal with that, right? They're not they're not machinists themselves more often than not. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm I guess my struggle, and this is why we don't really do many customer parts anymore. My struggle is always trying to explain precision to someone that wants it but doesn't understand it and um i guess that's more of a whinge than a than a, than a precision problem <laughs> but it is it is very much a problem when it starts affecting the parts you know yeah so i don't know i i understand why so many people get out of job shopping and try to find a product but uh for the time being i'm content in job shopping but uh yeah it's not without its drama And that's a wrap for episode five of the Precision Microcast. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening. We really appreciate the support. And if you'd like to show us more support, send us an Instagram DM or even leave a review on Apple Podcasts. If you'd like to get in contact with us, you can reach us at Adam the Machinist on Instagram for Adam's Instagram and Nicholas Hacko Watch for mine. We love hearing from you guys and engaging in discussion about precision. It's a fascinating topic and there's no better place uh, to talk about it than Instagram, it seems. So we'll see you or at least you'll hear us next time on the Precision Microcast. Mm-hmm.